You know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction of what they really have? The streaming service actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only about 6,000 of those are available in the good old US of A. That means you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows. Unless, of course, you use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location, protecting your devices from unwanted snooping and allowing you to control where streaming services and other websites think you're located. There are over 100 different locations to choose from, which means you have access to thousands of new shows and movies no matter where you live. This doesn't just work with Netflix, it works with Disney+, Hulu, Max, a UK streamer called BBC iPlayer, and more. I was on a work trip in the UK during the final season of Game of Thrones, and I tried logging into my HBO account to watch a new episode, but the technology wouldn't let me because of geoblocking. And I wish I had this app at that moment, because I now realize how incredibly easy it is to work around that problem. Here's a more recent example. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is not streaming on Netflix in the US, but I just fired up the episode where Dennis tries to have a peaceful mental health day, and technology keeps interrupting his plans. All I had to do was open ExpressVPN, connect to a UK server, refresh Netflix, and the show just popped up. It's super easy. I've also heard good things about that show called Billions, but I've never been a Showtime subscriber, so I've never seen it. But it's actually available right now on Netflix in South Korea, and with ExpressVPN, it took five seconds to switch over and start checking it out. With ExpressVPN, you get high-quality streaming from devices like your phone, laptop, tablet, and TV, and crucially, it protects your privacy and security to keep your information safe from hackers. Stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you all three extra months free when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash slash film. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slash film to get three extra months completely free. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we're going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. All right, Chris, let's get into what we've been watching. Let's just cut all the other crap and just talk about what we've been watching this episode. Uh, yeah. Speaking of crap, Chris, you and I both <laughs> <laughs> saw Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, which is making a lot of money and uh, is very successful. So that means that we don't have to feel too bad about talking about how bad we thought it was. <laughs> um, why don't you go first? <laughs> what a what a bad movie, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a, sort of a, like a dispiriting feeling that I got when I, you know, about, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes into the movie where I was like, oh, they really kind of aren't going to engage with, the um with the what i thought the premise of this movie was like at all because the the previous movie did this baton thing where like it built up to this uh this release of all these dinosaurs out into the wild right and like seemed to be like promising that this third movie in this trilogy would deal with the uh the interplay between dinosaurs in the world and humans and like how we've sort of come to uh to coexist and all of that kind of stuff and then the movie this movie introduces that concept in like an opening uh, expository it's like a youtube video yeah <laughs> and then it sort of just goes off on like a side quest and then uh i guess we'll, we'll say bugs. it is yeah well we're, we're gonna say spoilers for jurassic yeah. world dominion so we can talk about this freely i assume most of the people listening to this have probably seen the movie by now um but it does this whole side quest and then it like returns to that at the very very end so it's sort of it, it almost felt like a like an old school sitcom or something where it sort of like returned to the status quo by the end of the story, but it didn't really, you know, move the ball down the field, so to speak. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the, 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 the second movie or the second movie in this trilogy ended with this setup where it was going to be sort of like Mad Max Fury Road, but with dinosaurs. And as little as I've enjoyed the Jurassic world movies, I was like, that's a really good setup. I think maybe this will be cool. And then, then like the la- the first 20 minutes, it's like, never mind. Uh, most, <laughs> most of the dinosaurs are, are already living in a new, a new enclosed location. It's like, well, what the hell was the point of that setup? <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
So, but like, even if you want to overlook that and, you know, you, we shouldn't just judge a movie by what we wanted it to be. We shouldn't mm-hmm. judge a movie by what we're given and what we're given is just junk, just a really junky, boring, kind of pointless movie. It, like it becomes about big locusts that are eating <laughs> crops and it's like, what the hell? Like the dinosaurs take a, a back seat and like, yeah, they bring back, uh, you know, the three main characters from Jurassic Park. They bring back Sam Neill, Jeff Goldblum and Laura Dern. But they have them investigating bugs. And it's like, aren't these people like, well, I mean, Alan Grant is a dinosaur expert. Why is he invest? Why is he like, in, like investigating bugs? You know, it's, just, it's, I think it's the it's, reason that he's even brought in at all is because Ellie Sattler goes to him and she says something along the lines of like, you're a reliable out. witness yeah. or something. And like, like really, <laughs> you couldn't find a single other person to bring, like, I get it. I need to, I know they need to find an excuse to bring back Alan Grant, but it's like, Come on, really? Yeah, like that's was, mm. like, and it's it's just so just a disappointing movie from start to finish. The dinosaurs aren't interesting. The human characters are really boring. I mean, this is like the most boring Chris Pratt has ever been in his film career. He's just so lifeless. He's just like there. He's just yeah. like. I fix motorcycles. Like, I don't care. Yeah, that character is just so like, there's nothing there for him to grab onto. Cause I like Chris Pratt in the right roles. And this yeah. role is just like absolute trash for anybody. Not, not just Chris, Chris Pratt. Like nobody could do anything with this. Chris Pratt is very likable when he's playing like goofballs. Like, I think he's, he's enjoyable in the guardians movies because yeah. he's playing a goofball and, you know, parks and rec, which is like what made him sort of famous to begin with. He's a big lovable goofball on that. And, the Jurassic World series, like his character traits are he's handsome and he's cool and that's it. And it's like, <laughs> I don't give a shit about this guy. And, you know, Bryce Dallas Howard, she seems like a really nice person. She has nothing to do in this movie. Yeah. She just, just stands around. There's that clone girl. I don't care yeah, about that's, the clone girl. It's a huge problem because the movie really wants you to be invested in the relationship, this sort of like found family relationship aspect. Yeah. And this, this clone girl, Maisie Lockwood, they like spent so much time in the previous movie, you know, setting up the mythology of who this person is and all of this stuff. And it just like, it was so lifeless in Jurassic world fallen kingdom. And that was years ago. You cannot expect the audience to be like uh, emotionally invested in that character for, for as much of this movie as the filmmakers want you to be, because there's, there's this, just this whole, like, she's like the core of the story. And I just, I, it doesn't know, make again nothing against that actress. It's just that the the whole premise is stupid. And like I don't care, you know. Yeah. There's nothing and they're there. like, oh, she's her DNA is the key to stopping the locust. Like that's no, it isn't. Like <laughs> shut up. Like <laughs> I know you have to just suspend disbelief in these movies, but come on. Like the clone girl's DNA will stop the bugs. Get like that's just. It's ludicrous. And it's like, and they, they suddenly throw this whole thing in about how like her mom, AKA the person she was cloned from was like this big, important person at Jurassic park. Like, mm-hmm. stop it. Stop just shoehorning this stuff in. And it's just, I don't know. The movie's already long and it just feels like it was probably even longer. Cause there's stuff that does not pan out at all. Like there's this whole spy subplot basically where like they mm. go to, I, I want to say it's Malta, but it's probably, I forget what it actually is, but they go somewhere. Uh, uh, and then there's like this, this black market dino dealer character yes. who like just vanishes from the movie. Yeah. Uh, early in the movie when, when, when Maisie gets abducted, there's this like random woman who's like, come on the plane with me. And they never explain who that is. And like, <laughs> maybe she's from a like fallen kingdom and I forgot about her, but there's no explanation as to who that character is mm-hmm. and why, she, she also just vanishes. She's just like, all right, I flew you here. Now go away. Like, who are you? What is that? Uh, it's just a stupid movie. And it just ends. It's just like, all right, that's it. And then we all have to learn to live with dinosaur. Like the final three minutes of this movie are what I wanted the whole movie to be. Yeah. And, and like, they're almost identical to the final three minutes of the previous movie. Yeah. It's like, I just, I'm, you know, I know they'll probably make another movie in the series at some point because this was a hit. But I really do hope this is the end of this trilogy and whatever they do next is completely different because I, I do not want to see Owen Grady back. Yeah, then. I do not care about Owen Grady. And look, again, I, I, I think 
Colin Trevorrow seems like a nice guy. He clearly is really good in pitch meetings because he keeps getting really <laughs> high quality work. But he, <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> he's cursing me for saying this. Uh, he is he is not a good filmmaker. Like the best thing he's ever done is his unused script for the third Star Wars movie. And so uh, at this point, I think he needs like. Maybe he's just become a producer because that's probably mm. more his his speed. He is not a good filmmaker. He is not a good storyteller. Uh, this this is a, just a, a dumb bad movie. And you know, I I, I nothing is ever going to recapture the magic of that first Jurassic Park. But mm-hmm. come on, man, we we can do better than this, right? We we should be able to do better. Yeah, than this. that's that's the feeling I have too. I saw somebody tweet like. They made Laura Dern say he slid into my DMs. Yes. That, that tells you all you need to know about the new Jurassic movie, or something along those lines. I'm not forgive me. I don't forgive. I don't remember the person who who actually tweeted that. But uh, that that is yeah, pretty representative of like the level of dialogue and engagement and uh, and care that that seems to be put into bringing these characters back. Which it, the whole thing just kind of feels like. Yeah, it's it's very flat. Um, the the one standout I thought was Dewanda Wise. I thought she was actually like having fun and, and yeah, she's uh, basically like, she's like Han Solo in Jurassic park. And yeah. it's like, man, I'd rather just a movie about this character, like yeah. the, the smuggler in the Jurassic world. But yeah, yeah maybe she, that's what they could do in the inevitable, you know, follow-up movie or something like ditch uh, Pratt and Howard and, and maybe the, even the original cast, like, sorry, you guys were, were great in the first movie, but, uh, and then just maybe have like a DeWanda wise adventure or something. In the, yeah. In and the it's ongoing. like, even having the original three back did like nothing for me. And I, I love Jurassic park with all my heart. Mm-hmm. Like Laura dirt is trying really hard. She's like the only one of the three who seems to actually be trying. Sam Neill is just happy to be there. And Jeff Goldblum is basically just playing himself at this point. Like I know Ian Malcolm had, you know, those quirky Jeff Goldblum isms in the first movie, but he's like full Goldblum in this. He's basically just not playing a character at all. He's just like, ah, it's me, Jeff Goldblum. It's like, come on. Like he shouldn't, he should not be like, (laughs) he should be at least a little bit like the character we remember at this point. Like he shouldn't just be Jeff Goldblum, you know, (laughs) hamming it up, hamming it (laughs) all Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and then like it ends like all Jurassic movies seem to end with like uh, the human characters, you know, frantically running around and then the T-Rex fighting a bigger dinosaur. And like, how many times do we need to see this exact same sort of confrontation Seriously. set up? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I part of me doesn't like um uh, you know, stomping all over this movie as much as we just did. But I, I genuinely feel like what you just said is correct. Like, can't we do better than this? I think we've seen other franchises do better than this. It's not, it's not, um, I, I don't think we're asking too much. I think people maybe are asking too little from their, their franchise entertainment. Like it is yeah. possible to do, to make these movies um, actually like satisfying experiences that sort of check all the boxes, you know? Yeah. Like uh, I, I've seen people try and defend this and the other movies in the, in this trilogy who are just like, who cares? I just want to see dinosaurs. It's like, really? Is that really all you want? Like you should. And even for that, like there's the bugs, you know, like yeah. take up so much of this story. So this movie doesn't even really give you as many dinosaurs as you could, could have had, you know? Yeah. There, it feels like there are barely dinosaurs in this movie. There, there's so much focus on the humans and the bugs and uh, Campbell Scott is playing Dodgson and he has the, shaving cream can again somehow like how did he get that no it idea was buried in mud on a completely different island how did he get that I come think on and scott wrote a whole article about how stupid that was um and i i want to say that they're addressing it in uh jurassic park camp cretaceous which yeah. is a an animated yeah, series here. on netflix but um yeah you you cannot expect uh I, I, I don't know. It's not like the MCU where it's been like an established thing that like, okay, I guess I will have to have seen WandaVision to understand the full, you know, everything that I need to know for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. The Camp Cretaceous is for like, you know, elementary school kids as far yeah. as I understand. It's, I'm not going to watch like, a cartoon so I can figure out this movie I'm saying. Like, don't make me do homework. Yeah. Not to mention there's like no... There's not like a single moment that sort of connects this character with that guy in the first movie, you know, with the with the hat. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I, I know, like obviously you'll remember the name, but there's never like a moment where they're like, "This is that guy." Like, and I feel like if you're not paying attention, you would completely like miss that connection. It's just a yeah. lazy, lazy, stupid movie. Right? Yeah, and it made all the money in the world. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, I, I don't know what else to say about it. Maybe maybe we'll talk about it more uh, at, at some point. But um, at our best of the year list, <laughs> when it's number one somehow. Um, okay, so uh, Chris, on on the day that I saw Jurassic World Dominion, I knew that that was the movie that I was going to watch that evening, and I was like, I I have a feeling that this movie is not going to be great. I have to watch something that's good to offset this. So I watched a film called Sweet Smell of Success from 1957. Have you ever seen this movie? I have. Great movie. Great, great movie. stuff. I had heard great things about it. I knew it was sort of, you know, uh, hailed as a classic. So I, I rolled the dice on this and uh, and was, yeah, incredibly rewarded. Uh, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis star in this movie. And it's, it's basically about uh, Lancaster plays this character named J.J. Hunsecker, who is like a uh, very powerful um uh, like a media kingpin is what Wikipedia describes him as. He's, he's like a journalist who has his own uh, newspaper column that, it, that gets uh, syndicated nationwide. So he's super powerful. And uh, um, Tony Curtis plays this uh, press agent in New York who is just like a sweaty desperation sort of writ large. It's, it's a really great performance actually from both of them. Um, um, Lancaster is like really uh, physically imposing and, and, um, you know, quietly menacing in the whole movie. He's and, so good in this. Yeah. yeah. He's like, a guy, uh, like you don't usually, you don't really see him playing it that many like creepy guys. And he's really good at playing this like creepy guy in this movie. Yeah. This, this whole movie is, is really sort of like scuzzy. Cause the whole thing is about, um, Hunsecker being, uh, super protective of his younger sister who is, uh, in a relationship with this, uh, up and coming jazz player. And the whole movie is like this, uh, this um, scheming in order to sort of break up this couple, just because this big brother doesn't want his, his younger sister to be uh, to be going out with this guy. And so it's, it's all about this sort of like backroom dealings and like what sort of sacrifices you can make um, in order to, uh, you know, claw your way a little bit closer to power. And it's uh, it really is kind of like a, a gross movie in terms of like some of the stuff that these characters do. Um, but it's just so like gorgeously shot and, and really, um, you know, expertly told all the way around. So, uh, I would recommend watching this. Um, I don't remember. I, I, I will look it up uh, and tell people where it's streaming because I don't remember exactly where I where I watched this. But uh, Sweet Smell of Success is the movie, and it's great stuff. Um, speaking of great stuff, I finished The Sopranos, Chris. Finally, my first watch through of, of the show. Pretty good, right? Pretty uh, good show. Pretty damn good show, yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was just sort of bowled over really the whole way through. Like, I, I don't think that there's a, uh, a week part really a week season or anything even shows that i love there are seasons where i'm like ah, you know it dipped a little bit in quality here and there or whatever i feel like that sopranos is pretty damn consistent all the way through at just like almost the you know top level top tier elite shit um it's just really i mean edie falco good god like has there ever been a, a better like a better performance on television i mean that may be I mean, it's that just may like be, an um, exceptionally well cast show like every everyone on that show was so well cast it was yeah just, oh, wow okay so yeah i'm i mean i could probably gush about that show for several more minutes but i'm not really gonna add anything well, new to the conversation well but. let's talk a little bit about this but so ben uh, did you know about the ending like i feel like at this point you'd have to have not like yes. known it so, so the re- the really interesting thing here is I knew well, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'm so interesting. <laughs> okay. The interesting thing to me was I knew the ending of the show, the the cut to black. Right, right. everybody knows that. I didn't know who was in the room with Tony. I didn't know the circumstances that led up to that. Um, I didn't know which characters made it to the end of the show, uh, alive or dead. So I, I've got a lot of enjoyment out of, um, you know, even though I knew literally the last moment of the show, there was so much that I didn't know um, <laughs> until actually a couple of major deaths were spoiled for me in articles on Slashfilm.com, yes. which uh, is, you know, part of the the uh, <laughs> this line of work, I guess. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I was like thrilled to to watch the show with as much, um, I guess, like spoiler free, uh, as much of a spoiler free uh, context as I as I could. Um, and man, yeah, I, I don't want to give anything away, but uh, it's, <laughs> it's it's terrific. Like, I, I don't know what else to say that there's a there's what, what do you think about um, the very end of the show? I think we can talk about that openly because there's been yeah. like a, a raging debate ever since what 2007 when the show went off the air about like whether or not Tony was killed 
or yeah. like what actually that ending uh, means. And I know that um, Matt Zoller Seitz and Alan Seppenwald wrote a book recently called The Sopranos Sessions uh, that where evidently they spoke to David Chase and he goes into some some detail about um, what happens there. So I don't know if you've read that book, Chris. That's I have. Like something that you would have read. Yeah. Very good book. Yeah. Um, but what do you think about the the very end? Yeah. You know, I know there will always be some debate about this and I feel like David Chase will deliberately never give us a one way or another answer, but I do feel like you can take it sort of both ways. You can take it. Yes, he's dead because there are a lot of uh, hints for that because there's that whole thing during that final season where, uh, you know, the Bobby Bacala character early in that season, that final season, he has this whole speech about how, you know, when you die, you don't see it coming and it just cuts to black. Mm -hmm. And they deliberately cut back to him saying that in the second to last episode. And I feel like the fact that they took such great pains to underline that line of dialogue really does kind of point to Tony Soprano is dead. Mm -hmm. At at the same time, you can also read it as uh, no matter what Tony Soprano does, you know, this is how he's going to spend the rest of his life where he's always going to be looking over his shoulder and there, there are no real happy endings for people in his line of work. And he Mm -hmm. also doesn't deserve a happy ending because He's, you know, a murderous sociopath. <laughs> so I do feel like you can take it both ways. I've always kind of leaned towards he he, he he dies at the end. But I know some people have like a problem with that. All I remember, all I know is I can distinctly remember watching that final episode when it aired. I was still living with my parents at the time. That's how long ago this was. And I was, I was a young lad and I was in my bedroom and it cut to black. And I swear to God, I thought like my cable had gone out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what happened? I was like yelling. <laughs> and then it, like, it dawned on me. Like, like, obviously, the internet was around the time. But this was like pre, you know, Twitter. Pre mm-hmm. like, we got to jump on Twitter and immediately say what happened. So there was no place I could like immediately go and be like, what the hell was that about? So I just remember being like so like confused and shocked and uh, I, but I feel like that really did the trick because like, I, I don't think like a time has gone by where I don't like think about that, how strange and, and shocking and sudden that, that cut to black is and how, mm-hmm. how, you know, different that is. And I know a lot, some people, especially at the time were like, ah, fuck that. What a bad ending. But I really think it's a, it's like the perfect way to end that show. So now that I've rambled on, what do you think, Ben? How yeah. Think? I mean, I, I, like, I honestly don't really, I don't know yet. I think it's so ambiguous and so great because of that. And I was curious to see, to hear how your thoughts may have changed over the years, like how you initially reacted to it because my, my memory of that time, even though I didn't watch the show then was that people were furious about the ending, but it sort of seems like now people have come around to it being, you know, this sort of brilliant, uh, brilliant gambit of, of ambiguity. And, and I, I mean, I don't know, I'm sure there's some, somebody's going to write in and be like, you guys are missing the point. It's not about whether or not he's dead. And like, I totally uh, sympathize and, and understand that perspective. And that's probably closer to where I lean, honestly, is like, my opinion about the matter doesn't really matter. But um, I, I mean, just looking at it from a narrative angle, I like what you said a lot about, like, even if he, that moment even if he wasn't killed in that moment, it, it's representative of how he's going to feel for the rest of his life. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the camera does this really interesting thing where it it pans. It, there, there's a guy that walks into the diner yeah. and uh, Tony clocks everybody who's coming in. And, like, you know, there are a few people that walk in originally and he clocks them. And then the camera sort of leaves them alone and doesn't go back to them. But there's one guy that's sitting at the bar that it goes back to in a single shot. And he sort of glances over in that direction. And my wife is like, he could be just looking in the direction of the bathroom because that's yeah. where he goes. But then you have like all of the connections to the Godfather, right? Like the the implications of like Michael Corleone going into the bathroom and pulling a gun out and shooting somebody. Um, and, and the Sopranos is very obviously aware of the lineage of, um, of the Godfather and mob movies and all that yeah. kind of stuff, because the characters in the series have like really built a lot of their personalities based on watching this stuff. They're so like informed by pop culture and like these mafia stories that they internalize. So I, I don't know. I mean, I almost like, wouldn't be surprised if David Chase came out in an interview and said, yeah, that guy planted a gun in the bathroom and, and came out and shot Tony because he saw it in the Godfather. Like yeah. that's sort of how these characters operate. So um, the way that the camera like, tracks that character as he walks into the bathroom, 
um, makes me think that he is somebody important. But again, that could just be sort of to your point earlier of like Tony uh, just, you know, clocking through and just yeah. Yeah, being, you know, constantly assessing what's going on. Because that paranoia is a huge part of like how his, uh, of like his mindset in the last you know, season or two. So yeah, um, man, just great stuff. So much to think about. So like the dialogue is incredible, like all the way through there's, it's such a, a rich text of a show. Um, so I, I followed it out naturally with, with uh, watching the many saints of Newark, which is the movie that came out last year. Um, and forgive me, Chris, cause I know you've talked about this before, but like, I didn't have the context of, of the full show and, and watching this. So um, just remind me, like, what was your, uh, your take on that movie? You know, I liked it. I don't, I think it could have been a little better directed. Like it kind of has like a sort of flat visual sense that I, I just didn't love that much, but I, I dug it. I dug um, how nasty it is. I really like the the Dicky Moltisanti character because he's he's another one of these characters uh, who like he thinks he's a good guy and he just keep. I kind of liked how darkly comedic it was that he keeps doing these things where he's like I'm a good guy and then he just keeps brutally murdering people and yeah. and he keeps trying to convince everyone, including himself, like I'm a good guy. Like he teaches like little league for blind kids and stuff like that, but. When he's not doing these good things, he's out there literally like brutally murdering people. And I just thought that was a really interesting character. I I love the way the movie begins with this like pan through a graveyard. Mm -hmm. And every time they pass a tombstone, you hear people talking. And that's such a neat idea that the dead are just constantly rambling in their graves. It's kind of horrifying to think about. (laughs) It's like, that's what eternity is in, in the Sopranos world. You die and you talk to no one. And (laughs) I thought that was like such a a creepy, cool idea that uh, I didn't see a lot of people talking about that when the movie came out. I was like, that's like one of the coolest things in the movie. I don't know, but I I, I dug it overall. Um, I, I I thought um, James Gandolfini's son, Michael Gandolfini did a really good job, like, you know, doing sort of an impression of his father. He, He did a really good job making that character his own and uh, <coughs> sorry. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I know that the reaction was kind of mixed to it, but I dug it. So I'm curious to see what you thought, Ben, especially watching it so soon after the show. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I thought that it reminded me of just like, it felt like, like two more episodes of the, of the show or something. And it, it almost like, I cannot imagine watching it without having seen the show. So I don't really think it stands alone, even though David Chase would, would say otherwise. Like I, I heard an interview with him where he was talking about like, yeah, I think it's just like a, a good gangster movie that can work if you haven't seen the show. But like, there's so many references and sort of, um, you know, not necessarily Easter eggs, but sometimes Easter eggs. But like I, the thing I like the most about the show is, the, or about the the movie is the way that it, it sort of um, calls into question this idea of like, how reliable is your memory? And like, you know, all of these stories that we've heard from these different characters in, in The Sopranos, you see some of these um, uh, events that and stories that they tell, you know, decades later, you see the originating uh, incidents or whatever in this movie, because it's yeah. set whatever, 30, 40 years beforehand or whatever it is. Um, and and so, and, and a lot of times it's different than what the characters were, were uh you know spousing on or you know spouting off about or whatever uh years later so like how much of it is just um about like mythologizing how much of it is uh losing a little bit of details over time and like the infallibility of memory and all that kind of stuff but like i i really liked the the way that it sort of plays with the reliability of the overall narrative and like what is uh, what is truth? And like, you know, like you, you mentioned um, that graveyard sequence that it, this movie is sort of narrated by a character that I won't give away here. Um, and, and so is the whole, is this whole movie from his perspective? Because then maybe we should call the events of this movie into question a yeah. little bit too. So there's a lot of interesting stuff to think about um, on that level. So yeah, I, I did enjoy it as sort of like a continuation of the story, even though it's set in the past. Uh, I don't know if, I would say it's a great movie. Um, it's it's like, a movie with like great bits, I would say. Yeah. Like the, the Leslie Odom Jr. stuff struck me as slightly odd because the whole movie, like he's very good in it. And, and I enjoyed his character. Who's like this, um, this guy who um, basically becomes like, he, he, he was sort of like, uh, I guess under the thumb of Dickie Moltisanti and then, 
basically like strikes out on his own and yeah. deals with Frank Lucas, who was the character who was played by um, by Denzel Washington in American, yeah. American Gangster, which I thought was a cool little uh, connection there back in the day. And then, um, you know, he sort of like establishes himself as like a, a major player in this in the crime scene in in Newark. And um, but but like that character, I don't think was ever referenced in The Sopranos, the show. Yeah, it's weird. Like they don't really it's felt like kind of under undercooked or it's, it's kind of like a misdirect because they kind of make you think he's the one who's going to kill Dickie Maltesante mm-hmm. and like it's it's like a red herring but yeah I do feel like that character was really oddly underdeveloped uh, you know as uh, even though Leslie Lillard Jr. as you said did a really good job but yeah but I, Ray Liotta man how about Ray Liotta doing <sighs> giving two performances the late great Ray Liotta turns in two very different very good performances here and uh, yeah, he i feel killer. like the movie is like worth watching for for his two performances alone because he plays he plays twin brothers and one of them is like this volatile <laughs> lunatic and the other one is this like really kind of zen guy who just happens yeah. to be in jail and yeah like the exact opposite yeah. type of character and he does such a great job with those two roles, man. What a, what a loss! I'm so sad he 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 died, man. Yeah, the, the the moment like the volatile version of of the character that he plays. There's a moment where he does that sort of classic Ray Liotta like uh, forced laugh that's yes. like way beyond what any normal person would <laughs> yeah. ever do. And like he does that in Goodfellas, but this it's like he he dials it up even more, and like he, you know to the point where like you're watching along with it, and he keeps going with this laugh and. And like his eyes are like bugging out of his head almost. And you're just like, Jesus, this guy is unhinged. Yeah. And then he's just so like, um, yeah, like you said, like Zen and just cool and, and collected and, and very like centered in the, in the other uh, personality that he plays. Um, yeah. Great stuff. And then I just wanted to give a quick shout out to you, to uh, Corey Stoll and Vera Farmiga who are just doing like absolutely pitch perfect um, incarnations of uh, of Uncle June and um, and Livia Soprano because they're just like watching them. It was like you know I, I like Corey Soul and I like Vera Farmiga as actors and part of me almost like forgot that I was watching them because they were so they did such a good job of embodying the actors that played those characters in the show. Um, you know there are there are some uh, other ones that I don't necessarily need to uh, need to dunk on or anything here that I, I didn't think worked nearly as well. But those two, like I think, walk that tightrope perfectly. So um, yeah, great stuff there. Uh, okay, so what else did I watch? Oh, uh, and then I, I finally got around to watching um, Seven Samurai. Uh, I assume you've seen this, Chris, because it's like a classic, and everybody yep. should have seen this. Great movie. Okay, so I I remember adding this to my uh, DVD, my Netflix DVD queue in the year 2010. I think I'd wanted to see it, you know, before that, but that was 2010 was as far back as I as I could go of having like, um, you know, a hard record of uh, of proof that I wanted to see this, and it's just been sort of sitting in a queue ever since. And uh, it, the reason I hadn't watched it is because it's like three and a half hours, three hours and thirty seven minutes or something yeah, like a, that. It's a commitment. So, you know, I, I mentioned to my wife, like, ah, I, I was going to get up really early one day this week and watch this movie, but it's so long. There's no way I'm going to get up that early and watch it. And she was like, why don't you just like watch it this weekend? I got stuff to do, whatever. So I just sort of like carved out some time on Saturday where I was like, I'm going to spend my afternoon watching Seven Samurai. Uh, she also pointed out that because I wanted to see it in uh, 2010, I've now spent a third of my life wanting to see seven samurai, which is like kind of terrifying to think about and really depressing. Uh, but yes, I finally watched this movie. Akira Kurosawa directed it in 1954. Um, just, yeah, like, you know, lives up to every bit of, uh, of praise that it's ever received. I think it's, it's, you know, the template for, um, a lot of, uh, classic Western stories, you know, like the, the, um, characters sort of, riding into a, a town and like uh, gathering a bunch of um, ne'er-do-wells and, and protecting a village. And uh, the, the way that the, um, that Kurosawa moves the camera I've talked about before is just like incredible. And, and it just seems like so um, motivated in all the right ways where a lot of stuff that I watch now just sort of feels random. Uh, there's nothing about a Kurosawa movie that feels random to me. Um, and this movie in particular is so good at like establishing uh, the layout of this this uh, small village and showing, you know, okay, these characters are going are to be coming from this side. So 
this is where this part of the battle will take place. And it, it sort of reminded me of like a, you know, a, a proto diehard or something in that way, where it's just like the, the control and the, um, the geography is established so clearly that uh, the audience is never lost. Like, you, you know exactly where you are at all times, which is really important for something with the, with the scope as, that is as big as, uh, as this movie. So, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, this should not be the thing that, that convinces anyone to see Seven Samurai because the movie, uh, there's been a ton of great writing about it, obviously, and um, it's been a classic for 50 plus years. So just go watch it. But, uh, yeah, it, it definitely lived up to my expectations. So um, anything that you wanted to, to mention? When was the last time you saw it, Chris? Probably like four or five years ago, but it's, it's one of those movies where you watch it and you're like, Oh, this is like the blueprint for a million other movies. You can see the DNA of, of so many other movies just baked into this movie. It's like, Oh, this is where every filmmaker got their ideas. from. (laughs) It's like just one of those films where you watch it and it's like a enlightening thing. It's like, Oh, all right. Like the things you thought, were original to other movies you're like oh no they're actually just ripping this movie yeah so yeah and the final image too of uh of like several characters there's this this great shot where uh the surviving characters are standing in front of uh burial mounds with swords in them of the the samurai who have fallen in this in this battle and like just the um the I don't know what you would call it the the placement the blocking of the scene that the placement of these characters in the frame uh is just so um it's so perfect. It's so painterly and just, uh, just wonderful stuff. So anyway, seven samurai, it's great. Uh, I will look up where all this stuff is streaming and I'll tell everybody at the end, but Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, so I finally saw the unbearable weight of massive talent, which is of course the, the movie where Nicholas cage plays a version of himself. And you know, it's all about, it's basically every Nick cage meme rolled into a movie. And, uh, I thought it was good. I thought I enjoyed it. Um, it's it's not the best paced movie. Like I watched it and I was like, Jesus Christ, this is another one of those comedies that's over two hours. And then I saw when it ended, it was only 107 minutes, but it felt twice as long, which is not a good thing. But um, the things that work worked well. And Nicolas Cage is really uh, giving it his all playing this version of himself. And Pedro Pascal is is wonderful playing like the ultimate Nick Cage fanboy and they, they have a lot of great uh, amusing scenes together. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I feel like it could have been like 15 minutes shorter. <laughs> so where did you watch this or how did you watch it? I have it. Um, I just got sent the Blu-ray. It comes out on Blu-ray the 20, I want to say next week, the 21st. So okay. I got an advanced copy. So I think it's it's on digital already if you want to uh rent it out there folks. yeah that one's definitely in my queue i was thinking about watching that this past weekend but um I'll, I'll probably get around to it sometime in the in the near future i'm curious to see sort of how i i because you've seen like a ton of nicholas cage movies right like, oh yeah I mean, yeah i love nick cage he's a great, so, do, he's great do you think that there was a reference that you didn't get or did you did you catch all of the uh no the, I, I i got them all but there are things referenced in this that i was not expecting like they reference like guarding tests which is this comedy he made in the 90s with shirley mcclain and it's like who the hell remembers guarding tests? So they really did their homework for the movies. I, I was impressed that that there are some deep. It's not just like the obvious Nick Cage movie. There are some deep cuts in here that I thought were were were, uh, were a nice touch. Excellent. Okay, what else have you been watching? Yeah, so I watched uh, the, the the season finale of Barry season three. And since you haven't mentioned this, I'm I'm assuming you haven't watched it yet, Ben. No, I, I did watch it actually. I was oh. just I wanted you to go first because okay. uh, yeah, yeah. Tell me what you thought. <laughs> Man, this season, I you know, I love this show. I thought the season was great. Uh, but this is and I, I know this starts this feels like a buzzword where people are like, this is the darkest season yet, but I was I was amazed at how dark this season get got. And the final two episodes, especially this final episode, were uh incredibly dark and and disturbing and and anxious. You know, uh before I even started watching the finality, I finale, I was had this like horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. I was just like, oh man, what the hell is going to happen in this final episode? That's what you want to, uh, to <laughs> yeah. when you sit down to watch a half hour of television. Yeah. And it's like, I usually don't go for that sort of thing for, for my entertainment, but this show is so well made. Bill Hader, uh, not only is he a great actor and, and writer, but this this season in particular has proven that he is just a dynamite director. Like, I, I would have never guessed he was such a good filmmaker, but the episodes he directed this season have some just amazing uh, 
blocking and set pieces and just the way he sets things up. And this final episode is just, I, I honestly don't know where the hell the show goes from here. And I'm excited to see where it does go. But uh, th- this final episode like blows everything up basically. <laughs> okay. Like, so, so I want to, I want to uh, issue a spoiler warning here. Um, if you've not seen all of Barry season three, please go watch it. Cause Chris and I talked on, on this podcast about like this show, I don't know, a few episodes into the season and we were really liking it. I think both of us were like, are even more impressed now after the show uh, came to a, a conclusion at the end of the season, there's more stuff to come. I think Bill Hader is going to be directing every episode of season four, yeah. but if you've not seen the show, this is your final uh, chance to, to not be spoiled. Chris, what did you, um, I, I just wanted to like get a little bit more granular. What, what did you like a lot about the, the finale? You know, what I really like overall about this this season and the show in, lot, in general is that it's leaning hard into the fact that as much as we like Barry, because we like Bill Hader, he's not redeemable. And I think that's such a, a gutsy thing to really lean into. And obviously other shows have done that too, but I feel like this show goes on like really hard on it because... Like, you know, The Sopranos and Breaking Bad and shows like that where the the lead character is not redeemable, he sort of starts off kind of likable. Even The Sopranos with Tony Soprano, even though we know he's a mobster, Mm -hmm. we sort of like him at first. And it's only as the show progresses, like that that college episode where where it's the first time we finally see him kill someone, is, is when we start to realize, oh, this guy is not worth saving. And... And Barry does it in this way where you sort of thought like all along, like, you know, he's not such a bad guy, but he really is just a really bad guy. And he doesn't seem to realize that. And, you know, it's a, it's just a something with his, his, his mental state. But I just thought that was so fascinating. And I also love the way he sort of just corrupts everyone around him. Oh and, yeah. God, and that's the, sort of the tendrils of darkness. Yeah. Just, and that's something that uh better call Saul does really well too. And this, this show actually fe- has become sort of like, like a successor to better call Saul in a way, even though they've been airing at the same time, but uh, especially with the, the Sally subplot where, you know, she goes from earlier this season when Barry gives her this whole spiel about how he can like break into her, her former boss's house and, mm-hmm. and, and terrify. She's like, get out. I'm horrified. And then by the end of this season, she's wants to do that a hundred percent to someone completely different who really doesn't deserve it. Yeah. And it's like, and I was like, Oh, that's such a great twist. And then immediately after that, there's this like horrifying harrowing sequence where one of the bikers who was trying to kill Barry shows up and he, nearly kills and like it's mm. it, sh- it was shot in such a way that i honestly thought they were going to kill her off and i yeah. was like jesus christ this is <laughs> like this is going to upset a lot of people uh, yeah. but but that ends up being a, a callback to you know the character's past about how you know she has this whole story about her how her ex choked her and mm-hmm. she wishes she had stood up to him but she didn't and it has her finally standing up for herself but you know ending up <laughs> brutally murdering someone in the process and it's such a I think what was most impressive about this season is the way it ties together like everything that came before it. Like there's a lot that happens this season that is a direct callback to like season one. And I thought that was so interesting because it's like sort of paying off these things that we, we already have in our heads and we have like a perception of them. And this show is like twisting that perception in a way. Yeah. It, it does such a good job of like, um, like you're saying, you sort of like are rooting for Barry a little bit at the beginning of this series. And then this season now brings all of the consequences to bear for all the things that he did, you know, back in season one, like you get to see the, the after effects and the lingering traumas that he's inflicted on all these different families and people. And like, you know, the, the web of pain that, that sort of emanates from that character just continues to spread and spread and spread. And the show did a really great job this season in like going to the far, like the, the outer rings of that web and like bringing those characters closer and closer back to Barry to sort of make him pay for the things that he's done. And it's, it was just like really incredible to watch on like a, a narrative level. And then let alone like the, you know, seeing things, especially in that finale episode that I've never seen before. Like when Sally fights back against that guy and stabs him through the back of the head where like the knife is in his eye. I was just like, Jesus Christ, like yes. I've never seen that before. And that's so disturbing. And like, you know, you would think that in all of the, the action movies that, that, you know, we grew up watching, like somebody would have done something like that, but like leave it up to this show to come up with a super creative way to, uh, to show something brutal. And it's not just like, 
for the for the like badassery of it it's like a terrifying thing and then similarly like the the um noho hank like what with that whole panther sequence like she i mean like i i i my heart was pounding like i i felt like i my eyes were were uh like cuckoo's nested open you know watching that scene where i it was terrifying but i couldn't look away it was so well done it's amazing that 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 no house noho hank sequence is so amazing because on paper where it's like no oh hank here's people being killed by a panther it's like oh that sounds funny but then you watch it and the way Anthony Kerrigan plays that, where he just looks like he's losing his mind yeah. hearing people. And like, it's like, I felt so bad for that character. Like yes. that, that performance is so good because then he like, he has to go out and he has to save Cristobal. And mm-hmm. like, even though he's like a gangster, he's never really killed anyone. And this is like his first time killing people. And he, and like, he hugs Cristobal and he has that look on his face where oh. he just looks like, my heart he's, sank. He's like that, hollowed yeah. out inside. And it's like, I like, oh, poor. Like he's, he, at this point, he is like the most redeemable character on the show. And yeah. it's like, I don't know what's going to happen next for this guy. Like he's just so, I guess him and Gene are the most <laughs> redeemable characters on the show. But <laughs> yeah. even, even Gene in a way has sort of like fallen to this thing where he's like, he wanted, you know, there was a period there where he was kind of going along with things because he had gotten his career back. And, you know, he probably wouldn't have turned Barry in at the end like that if it hadn't been for for Janice Moss's father giving him that insane interrogation oh, where he's like God. yelling in his face. Yeah, that just yeah. the whole episode, like the whole. I read that Bill Hader said like they wanted the entire episode to feel like a panic attack, and it really does. Like from start to finish, just feels like oh something is very wrong here. And yeah, and it's just the season as a whole. This the episode before the final one I thought was phenomenal too, where. Uh, Barry is in like the sort of like the afterlife. And it reminded me a lot of like Sopranos dream episodes yes. where, where Tony like is in this weird otherworldly place. And there's this moment in that episode where Barry is on the beach and all the people he's killed are there and they're all just looking at the sea and they all look up at something and we don't see what it is, but we hear this like weird grinding sound and it just it cuts away and something about that like scared the hell and it's like we don't ever ever see what it is or what it was supposed to be but just like the everyone looking up with this blank expression and you hear this like massive strange machinery sound Mm -hmm. and it's like oh just just thinking about it now just gives me like the creeps man and like the fact that this show can do all that it can be like really funny and really scary and really disturbing is 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 a testament to how good this show is. And it's yeah, just, it, I think it's, it's like sneakily one of the best shows on TV. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, just like you would not expect it based on, you know, a hitman takes acting classes. Like yeah, the, like you know, such a like hacky premise. Like I actually didn't watch the first season because I was like, that premise sounds really corny. And everyone was like, no, you got to watch it. And it's such a great show that subverts your expectations because you expect – you basically expect like analyze this, you know, the hitman mm-hmm. goes to see a psychiatrist and it's, it's like, you know, not that at all. It's just this horrifying existential drama comedy. It's just so good. Yeah, man. And, and um, Sarah Goldberg who plays uh, Sally, Sally and, and uh, Anthony Kerrigan both had like incredible moments of, of face acting in the, the uh, finale. Like, you mentioned that moment with with the the panther sequence where like the camera just lingers on Anthony Kerrigan and he is just like he's crying and like so scared and you just you feel it emanating from him and then Sarah Goldberg when after like the the rage uh, sort of subsides in her and she realizes what she's done the, the camera is just like really close up on her face and she is just incredible in that and then also Bill Hader himself I mean we've talked so much uh, about how great he is as a director and and you know he's like the uh, one of the the chief creative voices behind the show, but like that scene where Albert um, confronts him up by the tree and the the graves and everything, and he just like drops to his knees and starts screaming and oh wailing and shrieking. It's just like the oh my man, like I, I I don't even know what to say about that. It's just it's it like almost transcends um you know a, a typical performance. It goes into this other level of of something else. It's just so freaking good. That's how I feel when I wake up in the morning, man. <laughs> 
<laughs> screaming to the just heavens. Dropped to my knees, and I'm just sobbing. Like, no, metaphorical Albert. Why have you come for me again? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't <laughs> any closing thoughts, Chris? I mean, I think we've done yeah, a pretty I, good job. But the only thing is, I'm just so happy we won't have to wait as long for the next. Like, we had to wait for this season because of the, the pandemic, and hopefully, we don't have to wait that long for this because I I am dying for more. Like. As much as I love this show and I love how concise it is, it goes by so fast, man, because those episodes are 30 minutes to the dot. Like, they don't yeah. go over 30 minutes. So you, like, blow through it, and you're like, ah, shit, now I got to wait, like, a whole year. So Yeah, and it's, what, eight episodes or something, right, yeah. every season? Yeah. So it's, it's like, It's oh, incredible man. thinking, like, comparing the amount of, um, you know, the emotional roller coaster and, like, all of the, the things that I feel, like, laughs, uh, terror, everything, that are compacted into a season of Barry versus something like, um, you know, Stranger Things season four, where it's, like, every episode, it feels like it's six hours long or whatever. Yeah. It's just, like it is possible to make incredible television uh, dramatic and, and comedic television at a half hour clip. And Barry is like, you know, example number one of, of uh, shows right now that are, that are working on such a, an incredibly high level. So, yeah. So it's like, um, it's, it's Bill Hader and Ben Stiller are somehow the best directors on TV. And I don't yeah. think anyone would have seen that coming <laughs> yeah. at any point. Somehow that happened, but here we are. Wow. Incredible. All right. Well, uh, yeah, you can find more about all of the, you know, Jurassic world, uh, Sopranos, many Saints of Newark, um, unbearable weight of massive talent. Oh, I forgot to say where the stuff is streaming. So sweet, uh, sweet smell of success is streaming on uh, Amazon prime video right now. And then um, Sopranos, Mini Saints of Newark, and Seven Samurai are all on HBO Max if you want to check those out. Uh, and then Barry, Season 3, is on HBO Max as well. So, uh, yeah, you can find more about all that stuff at SlashFilm.com. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world, the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.